Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And not just the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go papertarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Hey, we didn't get this title backwards in case any of you had a moment of like, that's not right. Uh, if you were hoping for Samuel Taylor Coleridge, the English romantic poet who wrote Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner and Kubla Khan, sorry, out of luck today... <laughs> I really am wondering how many people may respond to our social media posts about this episode. Similar to when we did Charles Chapin and a lot of people thought it was going to be Charlie Chaplin and got confused. Yeah. Yeah. Samuel Coleridge-Taylor. And because we are talking about a British composer who was a standout, both for his talent and also because he was a Black artist who moved in almost entirely white circles when that was pretty unheard of that's that's the confusion there. We'll tell you in the first part, he's named for the poet. Uh, <laughs> his music kind of fell out of favor for a while in the mid-20th century, but the last several decades, his work has had a bit of a revival, and he's a pretty interesting figure, uh, both as a, a composer and as kind of an interesting study in race in both England and the U.S. because he had a lot of U.S. connections uh, and how that impacted this person's life, who was a celebrity but was also in the middle of a lot of a lot of issues that, you know, tend to get put to the wayside when you think of someone who has privilege of celebrity, but they were still present in his life. So that's who we're talking about today. So Samuel Coleridge Taylor, at that time with no hyphen, was born on August 15th, 1875 in Holborn, London. It was named after Samuel Taylor Coleridge, as we just said. And apparently his mother a lot of the time called him by his middle name, Coleridge. As a young adult, his last name was hyphenated basically by accident in print. He just rolled with it. So his last name morphed from Taylor to Coleridge Taylor, so sometimes we'll be referring to him as Samuel, sometimes as Coleridge Taylor. Yeah, that's the the f- name his family took and his children took. So uh, I don't, I never found out if there was an actual 
legal moment of changing it or if he just adopted it and everyone was like, yep, that's fine. Uh, Name shifts aside, right out of the gate, there are some other discrepancies in his family records and the various biographies written about him. So his mother, Alice Taylor, was a white English woman. Her maiden name is recorded as Holman's on the birth record. His father, who is listed on his birth certificate as Daniel Hugh Taylor, was from Sierra Leone. And although Alice's last name at the time of Samuel's birth is given as Taylor, there is no record or evidence of Alice and Daniel ever having married. To further complicate things, Samuel's father left London months before Samuel was born. He probably did not ever know that Alice was pregnant. Daniel was a surgeon who had been studying at Taunton and King's College, London. And once he either finished his studies or uh, he became frustrated at the lack of opportunities available in England, he left. How that's told is a little different from telling to telling. We're also going to talk about him again a little bit later. So in his early life, Samuel was exposed to a lot of music. When he was five or six, he started playing the violin. He took lessons from a musician named Joseph Beckwith. In an account given by Beckwith years later, he said he had seen Samuel out the window of his home playing marbles while holding his violin and that he had asked the boy to play for him. It became clear he had been given some lessons. At that point, Beckwith took him on as a student and taught him for the next seven years. Samuel also joined the church choir. This timeline is also fuzzy. There, I read one pretty intense breakdown of it where people were trying to the the writer was trying to backdate okay then when did Beckwith start teaching him versus this claim that he had been playing since he was five or six did Beckwith meet him at that age or later it's all a little unclear Uh, but Alice and Samuel moved from Holborn to Croydon when he was still very young and this plus some support that he received from people around him in his music studies as a child also offer some clues and mysteries regarding his family. Samuel's mother, Alice, as we said, did not have the last name Taylor. She also did not have the last name Holman's, as appeared on his birth record. The name that she used was Alice Hare Martin. And this does align with Samuel's grandmother's last name. She was Emily Ann Martin. So why was Holman's entered as Alice's name on the birth record? There are people named Holmans in Samuel's early life. Those are Benjamin and Sarah Holmans, although sometimes they're called by Holman without the S, and that blurs the details even more. While their exact familial relationship with Alice and Samuel is fuzzy in a lot of accounts, they were involved in his life. They were specifically integral to his musical education. In a biography of Coleridge Taylor written for the British Library Board, Mike Phelps writes, quote, the confusion might well have been a deliberate strategy to circumvent the stigma of illegitimacy. On the other hand, if the Alice of the birth certificate was the same woman as Alice Hare Martin, it's not clear how or why she and her son shifted with such ease from the worst slum in the city to the relative safety of suburban Croydon and the warm bosom of a respectable working-class family. There's speculation that the confusing information related to Samuel's father offered on birth records was deliberate. It really wasn't possible to conceal that Samuel was multiracial, but his mother could at least sidestep any scandal or disadvantage that her child would have from having been 
born out of wedlock. So there have been a variety of speculations about this entire dynamic with Alice and the Holmans came to be. But when it all shakes down, it appears that Benjamin Holman, or Holmans, was probably Alice's biological father. Alice's mother, Emily, had also not been married when Alice was born. Census records are not all in alignment regarding this. An 1861 census of the Holman's household mentions four children of Benjamin and Sarah, none of whom are Alice. But then in 1871 and in 1881, those census records include her as a daughter. Coleridge Taylor did refer to Benjamin Holman's as his grandfather, so that seems to be what the situation is here. In an article for Black Music Research Journal from 2001, biographer Jeffrey Green, who wrote a whole book on him later that I was not able to get my hands on, uh, makes the case that some biographies have knowingly fudged these details because of that stigma that we talked about, and that has made it really tricky to unravel all of it over the years. Samuel was Alice's first child, but soon he had siblings, His mother married a railroad worker named George Evans in 1887, and they had three children together. The Holmans paid for Samuel's music lessons and gave him his first violin. We should note that Samuel was not the only musician in the family. His younger brother, Victor, also went on to have a musical career, and their other siblings also learned music through formal lessons. But Samuel, being the only multiracial child in the family, faced a lot of racism that his siblings did not. His classmates, he later recounted, called him Coley. Yeah, there's also a a side discussion to be had about the musicality of this family because, like, the Holmans were not especially musical. Benjamin Holman was, I think, a farrier. But the kids all got music lessons, and they tended to be pretty good at it. Uh, The church choir that we mentioned a moment ago also led to a mentorship of Samuel by the choir master. That was Colonel Herbert A. Walters. Walters was a professional merchant, but he was also an amateur musician who volunteered with the choir at St. George's Church of Croydon. And he saw so much promise in Samuel. Walters later arranged for Samuel to meet with Charles Grove, who was the head of the Royal College of Music. And Grove was impressed enough that Coleridge Taylor, who at this point was only 15, was given a scholarship, and he enrolled with the college that same year. Initially, Samuel started at the Royal College of Music as a violin student, but he also started taking composition classes. His professor in composition was Sir Charles Villiers Stanford, an Anglo-Irish composer who's considered one of the most influential of the late Romantic era. But Stanford was not the only impressive figure in Taylor's life at the school. Composers like Gustav Holtz and Ralph Vaughan Williams played concerts there. This was also a place where, if the lore is true, he didn't have to shoulder the racism alone because the school's leadership dealt with bigotry that was aimed at him head-on. In one instance, Sir Charles Villiers Stanford overheard another student make a racist remark and quickly and publicly informed this person that his talent level was so far below that of the young man that he had just insulted. Yeah, it did seem like they stuck up for him. That doesn't make it go away, obviously. Right, sure, but, sure. Uh, but he at least had support of people older than him that were in power. While he was still a student at the Royal College of Music, Coleridge Taylor had his first composition published by Novello and Company. 
That was an anthem titled In Thee, O Lord. So in this case, we're using the word anthem in its meaning as a choral hymn of praise. The following year, Novello published several more of his anthems, and this all happened before he started formally taking composition classes. And it's actually during these early publications that that hyphenation of his name happened. So this is officially in the early 1890s when he becomes Coleridge Taylor instead of Taylor. In 1893, having already gained a reputation for the music he had published, Coleridge Taylor was given a scholarship to study composition at the school. In 1895, Coleridge Taylor won the Leslie Alexander Composition Prize, and then he won it again the next year. In 1896, he also began a friendship that led to a collaborative relationship. That friendship was with Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Dunbar was three years older than Coleridge Taylor. He was one of the first Black poets from the United States to really be recognized for his mastery in the field, Dunbar was originally from Ohio, and he was visiting London in 1896 when the two of them met. Coleridge Taylor had heard about Dunbar's arrival in England and had sought him out. He went right to where he was staying to tell Dunbar he wanted to work with his poems. The two of them shared the trait of having been drawn to their fields very early in life. Just as Samuel was playing music from the age of five, Dunbar had written his first poem at the age of six, Both of them continued their life paths from there. So listeners, if you're trying to place Dunbar, you would recognize his poem, Sympathy. That's his most famous, and it includes the line, I know why the caged bird sings. It comes up twice in the final stanza. If you associate that more with Maya Angelou, (laughs) it is because she was inspired by this poem to use that line as the title of her autobiography. In 1897, Coleridge, Taylor, and Dunbar created their first project together. That was Seven African Romances. These were songs with lyrics by Dunbar and music by Coleridge Taylor. They quickly followed that with an operatic romance titled Dream Lovers. That was about two Moroccan men, one of them a prince. They fall in love with two sisters. At the age of 21, Samuel started conducting an amateur orchestra in Croydon and would conduct music with various choirs and orchestras for the rest of his life. Coming up, we're going to talk about Coleridge Taylor finding love with another musician. But first, we will take a quick sponsor break. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode, hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian, someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet, and also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day, seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if everyone's being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash Papertarian. While he was in school, Samuel met fellow Royal College of Music student Jesse Sarah Fleetwood Walmsley. She was a singer and a pianist and was six years older than Samuel. Their initial connection happened because Jesse needed a violinist to help with duets for piano and violin. That was 1892 when Samuel was just 17. Jesse completed her time at the RCM in 1893, so right about the time that Coleridge Taylor was beginning his composition studies in earnest. By February 1898, Jesse was singing with the choir of the Croydon Conservatory of Music, which gave a concert including works by Coleridge Taylor. Exactly when their relationship started is not clear because it really seems like the two of them kept things really quiet. Their instinct to do that was valid. Once the news broke that they were a couple, Jesse's family did not receive that news well at all. The Walmsleys referred to Samuel using a racist epithet, and when Samuel and Jesse announced their plans to get married, the family was deeply opposed to the union. They made some really gross and bigoted arguments to Jesse about all the ways that marrying this man, because of his race, would ruin her life. In the autumn of 1898, Coleridge Taylor had success with his original composition titled Ballad in A Minor. That won acclaim at the Gloucester Three Choirs Festival. This was a commission that had originally been offered to composer Edward Elgar, but he was unavailable and he recommended Coleridge Taylor instead, noting that the young composer was incredibly clever. 
This is one of many instances where Coleridge Taylor's career was really helped along by people with a lot of clout in musical circles who recognized just how extraordinary his talent and skill were. Later in 1898, Coleridge Taylor's composition Hiawatha's Wedding Feast made its debut. And this piece, which was inspired by the 1855 Longfellow poem Song of Hiawatha, brought almost instant fame to this young composer. This piece is a choral work that sets the language of the poem to music. It was published by Novello and then had its performance debut on November 11th at the RCM with his mentor, Stanford, conducting. One review of that debut performance read, quote, The production of Mr. Coleridge Taylor's cantata Hiawatha's Wedding Feast on Friday evening at the Royal College of Music marked another step forward in the career of that promising young composer. The Hiawatha meter is, for musical purposes, the most intractable in the world. There is no getting away from its persistent lilt. One feels doubly grateful to Mr. Coleridge Taylor for his musicianly treatment of a difficult subject. Another review from the Birmingham Daily Gazette from November 22nd read, quote, Hiawatha's Wedding Feast, a cantata for tenor, solo, chorus, and orchestra, words by Longfellow, music by S. Coleridge Taylor, is a very favorable example of this kind of writing and amply sustains the reputation of the composer as a musician of genius. It often happens that the reviewer, in his fear of doing even the smallest injustice, pauses to reconsider and over and over again reverts to the music submitted to his judgment. But nothing of the kind is needed here. From the first to the last, the work runs on easily, spontaneously, and in perfect accord with the words. Some courage is needed to attack such a libretto. People started referring to Coleridge Taylor as the Black Mahler. One of the most famous commentaries on this piece actually came from composer Sir Arthur Sullivan of Gilbert and Sullivan fame, who, despite not feeling great at this point in his life, went to this performance because it had been advertised as the latest thing of this up-and-coming genius. And he wrote in his diary after seeing the premiere that he had found the composition quote, fresh and original, as well as, quote, brilliant and full of color. He talks about how lush it is. He's pretty poetic about it. Uh, with the success of Hiawatha's Wedding Feast and the high profile that came with it, Jesse's family grudgingly cooled in their objection to the couple's relationship. Listen, this is not as though they magically stopped being racist, but the fame and the fortune that they thought would come with it made them amenable enough to at least attend Jesse and Samuel's wedding in 1899. He also produced sequels to the very popular Hiawatha's Wedding Feast. The first was Minnehaha, which debuted in October 1899 at the North Staffordshire Music Festival. The next was Hiawatha's Departure, which was published in the spring of 1900. These three pieces of music were intended by Coleridge Taylor as a trilogy, and was also performed and published in its entirety under the same title as the poem that inspired it, which was the Song of Hiawatha. But those second two parts of the trilogy didn't garner the same level of praise as the first. Performances of Hiawatha's Wedding Feast as a standalone piece also continued, and Coleridge Taylor conducted most of them in the years following its debut. In its first five years, 200 performances of it were staged in England. Yeah, it was hugely, hugely popular. 
Jesse and Samuel had their first child that same year that the trilogy was completed, a son, and they named him Hiawatha. Three years later, they welcomed a daughter named Gwendolyn Avril. As his family grew, Coleridge Taylor started taking a variety of jobs. He took teaching jobs and also playing for recitals. He started guest conducting. He started working with theater productions. Basically, he took any paying job he could that involved music. He was still composing, but he knew he needed to generate regular income to support Jesse and the children. And thankfully, because of his name recognition, he was able to find quite a lot of opportunities. In addition to producing new music and becoming a parent, Coleridge Taylor also started theatrical collaborations in 1900. He worked with Her Majesty's Theater, which is now His Majesty's Theater, which was built in 1897 by actor-manager Herbert Beerbaum Tree. The first project that Coleridge Taylor was brought in for was the production of Ulysses in 1900. He also attended the 1900 Pan-African Conference that took place in London in Westminster Town Hall in July. This gathering was organized by Henry Sylvester Williams, a Trinidadian barrister living in England at the time, who founded the African Association in London in 1897. This early effort of the Pan-African movement focused largely on issues facing the Black populations in the U.S. and Imperial European nations and calling for recognition of the rights of people of African descent. If you have read the W.E.B. Du Bois line, the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line, which appears in the foreword to The Souls of Black Folk, which he published three years later, You would also recognize it in the Address to the Nations of the World that was drafted at this conference. Du Bois was in attendance at the conference. The address calls for the end of mistreatment and sacrifice of African people in pursuit of wealth and also calls out the use of alleged good intentions as a way to excuse colonization and enslavement. That's in the passage, quote, "'Let not the cloak of Christian missionary work be allowed in the future.'" as so often has happened in the past, to hide the ruthless exploitation and moral destruction of less developed nations whose chief fault has been reliance on the plighted word of the Christian church. So the role of Black identity in Coleridge Taylor's life in some ways seems kind of fragmented. It could definitely be interpreted as somewhat tragic. He never knew his father, and though he was generally perceived as Black by people who met him or just saw him on the street, he was raised in an entirely white household, and he was, at the time, the only Black person in his school or among his professional peers and mentors. To be clear, the Royal College of Music had had another Black student before him. There was not anyone, though, in his immediate circle who really understood what his life was like. And it's clear when you think about that why he would have so eagerly welcomed the friendship and collaboration that he had with Paul Lawrence Dunbar. And his work seems to reflect this search for connection to other people of color. His fascination with Longfellow's Hiawatha narrative is invoked as an example of this because Coleridge Taylor links the two cultures musically in the piece. There's an echo of the spiritual Nobody Knows the Trouble I've Seen incorporated in the Hiawatha Overture. In the poem, Hiawatha looks for his father who has left his family behind, and that's led biographers to speculate about that being part of Coleridge Taylor's personal connection to the written material. 
Additionally, when he first heard the touring Fisk Jubilee Singers on a tour of England in 1899, he was instantly intrigued by Black American folk music and started to study it and incorporate elements of it in his own work. One of the things that becomes really apparent when looking at Coleridge Taylor's life is that beyond anything else, he was a very hard worker. And we're going to talk about the many jobs and projects that he juggled that we haven't even touched on yet when we come back from a sponsor break. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary Evolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more, while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper... You're a papertarian, someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day, seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if everyone's being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go papertarian? Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Even before his marriage and his theater work, 
Samuel Coleridge-Taylor had been the Croydon Symphony Orchestra's conductor. We mentioned that, and he had remained in that role until that group disbanded in 1903. He simultaneously served as the resident conductor for other groups, including the Rochester Choral Society and the Westmoreland Festival. As a lecturer, he taught about music in his hometown in Croydon for several years before becoming part of the Trinity College of Music teaching faculty in 1903. Though it would seem that he was already plenty busy at this point, he also started developing concerts with musicians from the defunct Croydon Symphony Orchestra, and he bankrolled two programs with them himself under the name Coleridge-Taylor Orchestral Concerts. Overlapping all of that conducting work, he partnered with Her Majesty's Theater again in 1902 for a production of Herod. He started conducting the Handel Society that year, He also started his first tour of the United States. That was not the United States' first exposure to his work. Two years before that, a Coleridge-Taylor Society had been formed in the U.S., and that group had really heavily promoted his work and had staged performances of his compositions. They invited him several years earlier in 1901, and he had turned the invitation down, presumably because he was so busy in the immediate wake of the Hiawatha trilogy being completed. It was in really high demand. So by the time he arrived in 1904, he was already famous in the U.S., so much so that he was introduced to President Theodore Roosevelt. He was asked to conduct the U.S. Marine Corps Band and the Coleridge-Taylor Society Chorus together. The audience for that performance was large, about 2,700 people. Two-thirds of those attending were Black. That same year as that first U.S. tour, Coleridge Taylor's father, Dr. Daniel Peter Hughes Taylor, died. And at that point, it seems that people kind of knew or had figured out that he was the composer's father, because that fact appeared in the obituary that was published in the British Medical Journal on October 22, 1904. That obituary reads, quote, The death is reported from the west coast of Africa of Dr. Daniel Peter Hughes Taylor, one of the earliest and most successful of the West African native practitioners of British medicine. He received his education at King's College London, where he graduated in 1874. He lived at Bathurst, the principal town of the Gambia Protectorate. There, he occupied the post of coroner and was also a justice of the peace for the colony. Dr. Taylor was, we believe, the father of Mr. Samuel Coleridge Taylor, a writer of sacred music and the author of Hiawatha. Uh, The gravestone that Dr. Taylor has in Gambia also allegedly notes that he is the father of Samuel Coleridge Taylor. The next couple of years are really filled with just an ongoing flurry of the kind of work we've been talking about already. In 1905, Coleridge Taylor started teaching at the Crystal Palace School of Art and Music. He published 24 Negro Melodies that year as well, writing in the introduction, quote, What Brahms has done for the Hungarian folk music, Dvorak for the Bohemian, and Grieg for the Norwegian, I have tried to do for Negro Melodies. The meaning here is that he was trying to show the merit of music that was associated with Black culture, which was so often derided. The Coleridge-Taylor orchestral concerts that had been created from the remnants of the Croydon Symphony Orchestra evolved once more to become the String Players Club in 1906. And Coleridge-Taylor was their honorary leader. He was not paying production costs out of pocket any longer. 
The production of Nero that was staged by Herbert Beerbaum Tree that year took up a lot of Coleridge's time. It had a full score. He also traveled to the U.S. once again to tour, and this time he had an even wider reach of cities included in the itinerary. His next project with Beerbaum Tree was Faust in 1908. In 1910, he started teaching at Guildhall School of Music as their composition professor. There was also a third U.S. tour that year, once again bigger than the previous one. His fame had continued to grow, and North American audiences were eager to hear the musical adaptation of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's epic poem. On that 1910 tour, Coleridge Taylor was invited to conduct not only for Black orchestras, but also for entirely white orchestras. After returning to London, Coleridge Taylor worked on his final collaboration with Herbert Beerbohm Tree, which was Othello. That production debuted in 1912. I saw but was not able to confirm that he was the first Black conductor invited or allowed to conduct an all-white orchestra. I don't know if that's true, but it seems like it. Mm -hmm. Um, There were several new compositions that he made after that third U.S. tour. Petite Suite de Concert and a cantata titled A Tale of Old Japan, which used the poem by Alfred Noyes as its inspiration, were both published in 1911. He sent the book for a commission titled Violin Concerto across the Atlantic to the U.S. for its premiere in early 1912. That version of the composition never made it and is lost because he had shipped it aboard the Titanic. This was obviously a man who stayed busy. If you're wondering why a famous composer had to take so many jobs to make ends meet, it's because that was not a job that made most artists wealthy. In Coleridge Taylor's case, he, like a lot of other composers, had accepted a flat fee for the rights to publish his compositions. Hiawatha's wedding feast earned him 25 pounds, 15 pence, But Novello made a lot more money than that from the many, many editions that the company published over the years. When the follow-up pieces of that trilogy were published, Coleridge Taylor made a lot more for them, a reported 250 pounds, which was a lot, but again, that was a one-time payment. One of the aspects of his life, which isn't really reflected in the significant list of projects and accomplishments, is just how deeply his life was affected by racism. It was something that his daughter wrote about in her book, The Heritage of Samuel Coleridge Taylor, that was published in 1979. And in that book, she shares memories of the way that her father was treated when he was out in public as a Black man, particularly when he was with his wife, Jessie. He may have been celebrated as a composer, but just as a person going about his business, he was often met with racism. He was particularly wounded when passersby would make insulting remarks about his wife or his children. So his daughter, who at this point was using her middle name of Avril when she wrote this biography, described him at one point as gripping her hand so tightly that it hurt when they were out in public and he anticipated racist comments from other people on the street. This was something that he didn't seem to talk about a lot, but it obviously caused him considerable stress. The story of Samuel Coleridge Taylor is sadly too short. While waiting for a train at West Croydon Station on August 28, 1912, he collapsed. He was taken to his home, and on September 1st, 1912, he died. His cause of death was pneumonia. That's believed to have been exacerbated by overwork. 
He was buried at Bandon Hill Cemetery. He was only 37 when he died, and his death was front-page news. Yeah, he had one of those uh, funerals that was just, like, attended by what seemed to people there every human alive. It was huge. Uh, But because he was still so young, his family was still dependent on his income. When friends and colleagues realized that his compositions didn't earn royalties, there was a whole lot of effort to try to find ways to drum up financial assistance so that they would be stable. There was a memorial concert at Royal Albert Hall on November 22nd, and the ticket sales, all of which went to Jesse and the kids, totaled more than 1,400 pounds. There were also college funds set up for Hiawatha and Gwendolyn of Real, and a pension was arranged for Jesse. While Coleridge Taylor's work fell out of favor for a while, and he was more or less forgotten by the middle of the 20th century, there's been a huge effort to get his work back onto music stands and performed. And that's really wonderful because now there are lots of recordings and videos of it available online, so you too can listen to things like Hiawatha's Wedding Feast. I have not listened to this, but Holly has. Oh, I recommend it. It's really beautiful. Some of it is so joyous and light. Some of it has this great moodiness to it. It's very, very pretty. I had heard it before, but in prepping this episode, I listened to a lot of his music just in the background, and I was constantly like, why did anybody stop playing this live? Like, I right. know it, it was not the the popular style for mm-hmm. a while, but it's so good. Um, so good. I have a fun email um, that is... <laughs> Uh, uh, again, laughing at things uh, because I need it after that. I'm so sad that, you know, uh, who kno- who knows what he could have composed had he lived longer. So uh, it's a bummer that we don't have more of his work. But I have a fun email from our listener, Katie, titled, The Trousers Have Wounded Us All. And it made me laugh because I made her laugh, and that makes me laugh some more. Uh, Katie writes, Dear Tracy and Holly, I may have never laughed harder while listening to a podcast than at the recent Friday episode where Holly read the truly incredible letter by a fan of Mrs. Patrick Campbell where he bemoans her unflattering pants. I was riding on my commuter train and I burst into cackling laughter which I could not restrain until I had a stitch in my side. So now her pants have wounded me too. I am confident the other commuters were madly unsettled. Thank you for this moment of hilarity and for the feeling of solidarity provided by hearing other women deal with this sort of nonsense. Your podcast continues to be amazing and I'm very grateful for all your hard work, wisdom, and laughter. I don't have pets, but I did recently visit the D.C. Zoo where one of the seals was sunbathing in the banana pose, which is apparently what seals do when they are happy. I've attached a picture of this very happy seal living its best life. Can I tell you the envy I felt for this seal when I opened this picture? I'm like, oh, man, I want to sit in banana pose. Um, Katie, thank you, because then I laughed again. And listen, laughter, best medicine, etc. I'm a believer. Um... Listen, those pants still making me laugh. If you would like to write to us about pants that hurt you by existing or anything else, you can do so at HistoryPodcast at iHeartRadio.com. You can also find us on social media as Missed in History. And if you have not yet subscribed to the podcast, you can do that on the iHeartRadio app or anywhere you listen to your favorite shows. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping? Then give your business the edge it needs with USPS Ground Advantage Shipping from the United States Postal Service. Keep everything simple with clear upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there. And keep it all reliable with on-time ground shipments. It's time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.